things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a family that moved to a new town, uh, a new state, and they had children. One of their, their sons' names was Isaac. And Isaac was going into high school. He was a freshman, so it was a brand new town, brand new school, and brand new grade level going into to high school as a freshman. And he was worried that he was not going to be able to make friends. But he made a friend the very first week of school. And this new friend invited him over to his house. So after school one day, Isaac went over to his new friend's house. And he said, come on in, let me show you around. And he showed him his house and he, he took him to his room. And when Isaac walked in the room, the first thing he saw were these bows on, on the wall. And then arrows, different arrows displayed, all different colors and different uh, feathers on the end, different, different points on the end of each arrow. And he kept looking around and then he saw all this equipment on the, on the floor piled up against the wall. Some of it he didn't even recognize. And then he kept looking around the room and then on, on one wall he was struck by the sheer number of, of ribbons and trophies and plaques and he went over and he read some of them and as you can imagine they said first place second place third place and they were all awards for different archery competitions Isaac said wow this is this is great and his new friend said you want to go outside and shoot and he said sure so they he grabbed a bow and some arrows and they went into their backyard which was very deep easily 75 yards it went way back and so he, he had Isaac hold the bow and he showed him how to, to put his hand and, and how to notch an arrow and then how to kind of line it up and the best way to release and, and everything he needed to know. He said, go ahead and shoot. And so Isaac shot at the first target and he missed. He was low, quite a bit short of the target and low. And he said, that's okay. He said, this time aim a little higher and pull back a little further. So Isaac shot again. And this time he hit the target. It actually barely made it on he he clipped the very bottom of the target so he was happy with that then Isaac handed the bow to his new friend and he said what what can you do with this and the new friend took the bow and he set five arrows down next to him and one by one in a very fluid motion he pulled it up notched it pulled it back aimed for about a second and a half at the furthest target easily 50 yards away and he hit the bullseye every single time And Isaac was just amazed. He said, how did you do that? And he said, well, I've been shooting for years. And I practice just about every day. And I've had lots of really good coaches. And I've been working towards a goal. In fact, in a couple of years, I'm I'm trying to qualify for the Olympics. And then he said, humbly, yet confidently, archery's kind of my thing. And Isaac said, it is your thing. It's, it's all the way your thing. You're amazing. What's your thing? What, what, what's something that, that says, this is what I do. This is where I spend some time. This is what I've, I've chosen to kind of make my thing. Or do you have a thing? For some people, reading is their thing. For other people, uh, gardening is their thing. For some people, it's, it's woodworking or fishing or home improvement. I, I knew a man one time whose thing was 
very brightly colorful and, and patterned socks. That was his thing. And he would, whenever he walked up to somebody, he would be raising his pant leg to show off his, his new crazy, kind of wacky looking socks. That was, that was his thing. And when it comes down to it, your thing can be anything you want it to be. It's really up to us. You can choose what your thing is. What about the church? What's the church's thing? What is it that the church does? What is it that the church focuses on and invests in and proclaims and rallies around? What is the church's thing? In John 17, 20 through 26, we're going to see Jesus praying for the church's thing. He's going to be praying for unity for his people around the church's thing. And I don't want to state it up front. I want us to discover it as we walk through the text. But the main point is this. Jesus has given his church her thing. Unlike our thing, where we can choose what we want, the church has been given her thing by Christ. We're not allowed to choose our thing as his church. And we're also not allowed to to set the thing he's given us down and pick up a different thing at any given time. The church's thing is what Jesus says it is. So before we identify the church's thing, we need to spend some time in verse 20, which is our first verse in this passage. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, if you've spent any amount of time in the Gospel of John, or if you've heard this preached or taught on in the past, uh, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And some have attempted to make the argument that verse 20 begins the part where he's now talking about us, uh, where we can apply this now to us. This is where he's applying, or excuse me, praying for all believers. But before verse 20, he was only praying for his disciples and we should be very cautious because that's really not for us, that was for them. And while I appreciate the fact that this high priestly prayer can very easily be divided into 1 through 5, 6 through 19, and then 20 through 26, that makes for a very nice outline. I don't have any problem with that outline. But here's why taking the first part of the prayer as not applying to us is not a good interpretive fit. Uh, First of all, I think you can see in verse two, Jesus is talking to the father. um, He's talking about the father. He's praying to the father, talking about the father giving the son over authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So this is a clear reference to all believers already in verses two and three. Uh, In in three, Jesus is still praying for all whom have been given to him that they may know the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So it's difficult to argue that Jesus isn't praying for all believers until verse 20 when he's already mentioning them in verses 2 and 3. Also, uh, Jesus uses the same phrase to reference who he is praying for before and after verse 20. If you look at both verse 9 and verse 24, Jesus describes who he is praying for with these words. He says, whom you have given me. Whom you have given me. Well, who does the Father give to the Son? 
all the elect, all believers throughout all time. So if the father gives all believers to the son, he's not just talking about just the 11. And it would be very strange indeed to have the exact same phrase mean two different things within the same prayer. It would be very, very highly unlikely that Jesus would use the exact same wording to refer to one group in in the first part of the prayer and a whole completely different group in the second part of the prayer. That just wouldn't work. Now, it's true that Jesus was praying for the 11 disciples and he was praying in the presence of the 11 disciples. And we can see him reference the 11 in the prayer. We see this most clearly in verse 12, where he says, while I was with them, he's talking about the 11. That's clearly talking about the 11. But the fact that Jesus references the 11 in a prayer for all disciples does not mean that it's no longer a prayer for all disciples. And then finally, it makes much more sense that Jesus is talking and telling the men standing around him at that time that he is not just praying for them, but that he is praying for all believers. Rather, than Jesus praying in front of disciples that are standing there right with him at that time, but indirectly addressing you and me and everybody in the future with the message of, hey, uh, I don't want you future people to think that I've been praying for you up till this uh, verse in verse 20, um, because I haven't. Now I'm going to start praying for you, but please don't take anything I have prayed so far and apply it to yourselves. That that seems just frankly far-fetched to to think that that's what he was intending with those words. So verse 20 does not serve as as a limiting marker that says we're only praying for these people here and then only for these people here. Instead, it serves as a clarifying statement telling the original listeners about uh, and future readers that Jesus is making these prayer and has these prayer concerns for all disciples. Yes, he is praying for the 11, but he is also praying for all who will believe in him. Jesus wants all believers to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. He wants all believers to be kept in God's name and persevere. He wants all believers to be kept from the evil one and he wants all believers to be sanctified in the truth. So that's verse 20. Let's let's keep moving. Verse 21, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. The they, in verse 21, is all believers. And Jesus is praying that all believers may be one or be united as the Father and the Son are one and united. Nothing new here. We've seen this before in the Gospel of John, John 10.30, I and the Father are one. A few verses later, in John 10.38, he says, understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. So the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. Believers, the Bible teaches, are in Christ by faith. If you are in Christ, you are also in the Father. If you are spiritually united to Jesus, you are also spiritually united to the Father. You can't have one without the other. If you belong to Christ, you also belong to the Father. True believers are in Christ and in the Father. And that's what Jesus is talking about here, this this unity, this oneness, this spiritual uh, binding to, to the Son and also to the Father. You can't break that up. They're indivisible. And this unity has a purpose. Verse 21, the second half. So that, that's a purpose clause, 
the world may believe that you have sent me. How would the unity of believers and their spiritual union with the Son and the Father testify or give witness to the world that Jesus is who he claims to be? Because that's what he's saying. Well, when the world sees ordinary people in Christ by faith, when the world sees a, a Christian man or a woman dying to themselves and living for Christ with single-minded devotion and an otherworldly allegiance, that gives witness to the power and authenticity of Jesus. Or we could say it another way like this. When the world sees genuine followers of Christ, they are seeing evidence that points to the genuineness of Christ. There was a, a man at, at a, another church who used to come to church every week and he would sit in the pew and once in a while he would see the pastor and the pastor would greet him and shake his hand and they seemed to, to get along just fine. Um, this went on for several weeks, even a couple months. And then one day the, the pastor happened to catch the man and he said, hey, you know, I've noticed you've been pretty consistently coming for several months now. We're running a new members class and if you're interested in joining, this, this class is for you. And the man said, oh, no, I'm not interested in joining. I, I don't actually believe in any of this stuff. I'm, I'm, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't, I don't believe in, in church and all that. And the pastor was shocked and he said, well, then why are you here? <laughs> why, why do you keep coming back? He said, well, it's pretty obvious that you believe it. And I really enjoy watching you preach it. You preach with a lot of passion and conviction. It's fun to watch. I don't have anything else to do on Sunday morning. I just come to watch you preach. When the world sees followers of Christ living for Christ, they're seeing evidence that points to the genuineness of Christ. So whatever the church's thing is, it must center on Jesus Christ. We probably knew that already. Whatever the church's thing is, it has to center on Jesus Christ. Well, let's keep moving. Glory in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. This is Jesus speaking. What does Jesus mean when he talks about the glory that the Father has given to him and that he also has given to his disciples. What is the glory in this verse? So that you know up front, the meaning of glory in this verse has been disputed. It continues to be disputed. And there have been so many suggestions thrown out there and I'm not gonna go into a long excursus and give the arguments for and against each one. Um, there are various meanings that have been put forward. They range from miracle working to immortality from the image of God to the mind of Christ to the Holy Spirit. I mean, you name it. Almost everyone has a suggestion for what they think glory means here. However, I think the best way to understand glory is to see it as a reference to the full revelation of God or the word of God. And here's why. If we look at the immediate context and the prayer itself, it makes the most sense because Jesus has talked about this before and he has specified what he means. Look at John 17, 7 through 8. It's on the same page. He says, Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them 
the words that you gave me and they have received them. Same thing. He's talking about what he's received or what the Father has given to him and then what he has now given to his disciples and he identifies it. He says the words that you gave me. So here in verse 22, he's again talking about what the Father has given to him and what he's given to his disciples and it is the word. Glory is often associated with a revealing of God and with a a manifestation of, of the character of God and God's person and God's word certainly does that. Where else do we turn to to find out about God? Where else can we, can we look to know about God other than his word? It's through the word that the disciples of Jesus have come to know him and have come to know God the Father fully. And the giving of this glory is part of what enables the church to be united. This is the common thread. It doesn't matter if you live here or if you were born on the other side of the world. If you are in Christ's church, you are rallying around um, the the obedience to and and the the teaching of and the obeying of God's word. That's where we're united. We're united around Christ and his word. So the giving of God's revelation not only fits the immediate context, it checks all the boxes and it makes the most interpretive sense. So let's take that meaning of glory, God's full revelation, his word, or the gospel, everything about God's redemptive plan, and let's plug it into verses 22 and 23. The glory, God's word, full revelation, that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. He's saying the revelation that I have received from the Father and I have given to my disciples, that is going to be the truth that their unity is built upon. In other words, that is going to be the church's thing. Verses 21 through 23 contain a call to all believers for unity and oneness around Jesus Christ and his word or Jesus Christ and the gospel. Jesus Christ and the fullness of God's revelation to us. This is the church's church's thing. It's unity and oneness centered on Jesus Christ and the revelation of God. Jesus and the word, Jesus and the gospel. This is the church's thing. This is what the church is about. This is what she focuses on. This is what unites her. This is what she proclaims. It's what she invests in. It's what she spends time on. It's the church's thing. And then look, we've got another purpose clause that mirrors the, the one that we saw in verse 21. Verse 21 says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23 says, so that the world may know that you have sent me. And then it adds, and love them even as you love me. So once again, this unity and oneness that the church should be exhibiting as, as she stands firmly on Christ and his word is the evidence that points to the genuineness of Christ and the genuineness of the church's status as a spiritually unique people who are loved by God. The church's thing marks her as the genuine church. 
as long as the faithful church is holding on to the church's thing, Jesus Christ and the gospel, the revelation of God, that will mark her as God's church. The world is supposed to be able to look at the church and see her rallying around Jesus Christ and his word, confessing it, believing it, proclaiming it, obeying it, defending it, holding to it. The world is supposed to see that and come to the conclusion, those are the people of God. Those are the people of God who follow Jesus Christ. Those are the people of God who follow Jesus, the sent one who came to die on the cross. God uses his church doing her thing to call people to himself and save them. Remember, the main point is this. Jesus gives the church her thing. We don't get to choose our thing. You might be able to choose archery or wacky socks, and that's fine. But the church does not get to choose her thing. Jesus chooses for us and has handed it to us. Some might say in reply to this, um, well, of course, I, I don't see how anybody could miss this. Jesus and the gospel, I probably could have told you that before you preached it. I probably, I pro- there are probably some people who said, I called that. I knew it was going to be Jesus and, and the word. You're right. Um, but you might be thinking, how could the church ever take her eyes off Jesus Christ and the gospel? That's just such a no-brainer. Who in their right mind would drop Jesus and the gospel and pick up something else as her thing? It seems ridiculous. Nevertheless, it happens. It happens. Here are some things that the church has picked up <clears throat> or is picking up instead of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Fascination with spiritual gifts. We saw it in Corinth. When we looked at 1 Corinthians, we saw Paul addressing the local church being fascinated and infatuated with spiritual gifts and placing too much emphasis on those gifts. And sadly to say, it still happens today. There are certain branches of the Christian tree that place so much emphasis on spiritual gifts and certain spiritual gifts that they would say, you need to be exhibiting this particular spiritual gift or you're not going to ever lead or serve in the church. Or this certain spiritual gift is what marks the true spiritually mature Christian. And until you have it, you're, you're not there yet. There's a fascination of spiritual gifts. There are branches of the Christian church who has made that her thing. They, they've picked that up. Another one, following charismatic leaders. Some churches make that their thing. Even if those leaders are teaching false doctrine, even if those leaders are living ongoing, unrepentant, ungodly lives, because they're so charismatic, they're so gifted, they're such excellent communicators, or they're so good at being people persons that they amass a following and they get this big church and this big following. They've got all these these uh, appearances and, and tours and they get so big that it doesn't matter what they're teaching. It doesn't matter how they're living. You still have people that acknowledge that, even recognize it, and still say, lead us. Take us to the next level. They've made charismatic leaders their thing at the expense of Jesus Christ and his word. 
Here's another one. May touch a nerve on this one. Planting churches. Growing and planting churches. Now, I am all for planting churches. I am all for the people that live sacrificially, that are sent out, that go and plant new churches. I am for godly men and women who form uh, the, the the nucleus of a new church. I am for godly pastors who go out and and struggle through and 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 plow into that unplowed ground and 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 plant churches. I am all for that. But there are some that focus so much on planting churches that they neglect the doctrine and theology that those churches being planted are teaching and preaching. And they're also so eager to get churches opened with open doors that they don't care which leaders are leading those church plants and what they're teaching and what their theology and doctrine is like. I've seen it. There's a lot of pressure in certain denominations and in certain church planting networks to meet those goals, to get X number of churches planted by this timeline. They're, they're under so much goal uh, pressure and they, they get so uh, tunnel visioned on planting churches that they neglect what those churches actually look like and they drop Christ and his word and they allow something else to pick up. That can't be the church's thing. Church planting is good, but church planting at the expense of truth and God's word and following Christ is not good. Here are some other things. I'm just going to touch on these. I'm not going to give full explanations on each one, but here are some other things that sometimes the church makes her thing. Politics. Left or right. Nationalism or patriotism. That cannot be the church's thing. You cannot marry patriotism, nationalism, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot do it. Pursuing worldly social justice. Once again, we're for biblical justice. We're not for the um, the thing that's masquerading as justice that's going on in our world today. That can't be it. Environmental activism. The, there are some that are churches that are that are more interested in they're they're lessening their carbon footprint and and more interested in sustainability than they are the the Holy Spirit and and the power of sanctification and the, and the cross. That can't be the church's thing. Affirming and welcoming sinful practice. Now we want to welcome every single person, regardless of who they are, into the Lord's Day worship. But welcoming and affirming ongoing, unrepentant sin to the Lord's table, we can't do that. We cannot. But there are churches that do that. They make that their thing. They put it in their mission and vision statement. They announce it from the pulpit. Blessing sexual immorality. There are some churches that they've made that their thing. Family and friendships. Family and friendships. Once again, we're all for family. We're all for friendships. But there are some churches that take those things and they elevate them above truth so that they're more interested in the holy huddle and maintaining those relationships than they are in maintaining truth. They, they can't move forward with discipline or correction because it would threaten family or relationships or friendships. Seeking ecumenical ties, fraternal relations, or other, any other kind of partnership with false false churches or false religions. Preaching to felt needs. 
um, five ways to live a a stress-free life, uh, seven parenting tips you can't afford to miss. We're all for de-stressing our life. We're all for good parenting, but that's not preaching. That's felt needs. I think we're starting to get the picture. Each one of these things that I've mentioned are in play in America right now. They're out there. We, we might think, who would ever get rid of Jesus and the gospel? It happens. It happens. There are local churches that make these things their thing. Which means Jesus Christ and the gospel is not their thing. There was an elementary school play that was in production and the teacher um, had spent a lot of hours making props and things like that for the kids. And it was a forest theme. So they had uh, trees and, and rocks and big bushes and some animals like a deer and a raccoon. And each one of the children were allowed to pick their own prop. Uh, so, you know, one child ran over here and they picked up a tree and it was so big and bulky that they, they needed two hands. And then they had to put their face through the little oval and, the, you know, I was the tree in the school play. And then somebody else picked up the raccoon and somebody else picked up the, the rock. Well, there was one student who couldn't decide. First, they ran to the tree and they liked it because it was so tall and they liked walking around with the big tree. But then they saw somebody else who was a raccoon and they wanted to be an animal. So they, they went over here and they they held onto the tree with one hand and the raccoon with the other and they, they tried to, to be both and the teacher said, honey, you can't be both. You have to put one or the other down. That's how it is with the church's thing. She cannot hold more than one thing at a time. If you make any one of these things your thing, that means you have to first put Jesus Christ and the gospel down to pick that up. You cannot hold on to both. Jesus is praying that his followers be one or be united around the revelation of God concerning the redemptive plan of God, which is centered on Jesus Christ and the gospel. When the church makes Jesus and the word her thing, that is how the world is going to hear and believe. That's the only way the world is going to hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way people are going to hear the good news and be brought into the kingdom of God and have their sins forgiven. They will not hear that if they make something else the church's thing. So once again, the church does not get to choose her thing. Jesus tells us what it is, and it is Jesus Christ and the word of God, the gospel. Well, verse 24, final requests. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus in his prayer has prayed for our perseverance. He's prayed for uh, that we be kept from the evil one while in the world. He's prayed for our sanctification. He's prayed for our unity around Christ and the gospel. And now he is praying for our eternal dwelling place. We have all kinds of questions about our eternal dwelling place. We have all kinds of questions about heaven and what it will be like and who we'll recognize and how much we'll know or can we see things back here. And We just have all kinds of questions, but we're really not given much information at all, not too many details whatsoever. So 
when the Bible is silent, it is not prudent or fruitful to begin to speculate or ask questions. So what we do know is this, we will be with the Lord. We will be with the Lord Jesus Christ. We know it will be perfect. We know it will surpass the Garden of Eden. And that's all the Lord wants us to know right now. We will be with him. We will be in the heavenly realm forever and it will be perfect. And then these last two verses form the conclusion of his prayer. Verse 25, O righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. He seems to be concluding his prayer with a a summary of of how things are at the end of his ministry, kind of the state of, of things at the end of his his ministry on earth. Verse 26, I made known to them your name. That's in that expanded sense still, everything that God has chosen to reveal about himself. And I will continue to make it known. So Jesus has made known the things of God, what he what God feels is is necessary for us to know, he has revealed. And he will continue to make that known. How? By the power of his spirit. Let's look back at John 16, 13 and 14. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, the apostles, into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus promises through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that he will continue to make known the things of God, God's revelation to the apostles. They will declare it, teach it, and write it down. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So he ends his prayer by praying for his, the father's love for him to dwell in his disciples. The love that he has experienced, he wants his disciples also to experience. That same love that Jesus is shown by the Father is to be shown to his disciples. And this tells us this. If you are in Christ, you are loved by God eternally. If you are in Christ, you are loved by God perfectly. Because the Father can never stop loving the Son, that means if you are in Christ by faith, you can never stop being loved by God. That's a promise. Well, we've talked about the church's thing, but I asked at the beginning, what's your thing? What are you known for? What have you chosen to be your thing? I remember talking with a man uh, and meeting him for the first time. He was a Christian. And we asked the usual questions. Where are you from? What do you do? What, What about your family? And he was talking about his job. And at the end, he was kind of wrapping up, telling me about Um, what he did and and how long he'd been working. But he ended with this. He said, now that's what I do, but that's not who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I like that. I I thought that sounded good. I think that's true of all of us. I mean, we we may have our thing. We may be into gardening or, or archery or axe throwing or colorful socks. I mean, whatever it is, that's our thing, but that's not who we are. We are followers of Jesus Christ, first and foremost. And I also want to say this. If you are not currently a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are not saved. You need to understand that. If you are not currently 
repenting and believing in Jesus Christ, if you're not all in, if you haven't committed your life to Christ and following him, then you are not saved from the wrath of God that will be visited upon you for your sins. And so I would implore you, seek shelter now. Turn to Christ today. Don't wait for the storm to hit. Don't wait for the wrath of God to show up. But turn to Christ now. Seek shelter today. And God promises that whoever places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and trusts in him for their salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins, he will forgive their sin. And he will not visit them with his wrath because Jesus Christ took that wrath. Jesus Christ took the wrath for the sins of the elect on the cross. So if Christ paid for your sin, if Christ took the wrath of God for your sin, that means you do not have to experience the wrath of God for your sin. That is only in Christ. So turn to him today. Repent of your sin. Don't think that things are going to be okay. Don't don't ever rely on your own self-righteousness or think that you're going to be good enough to pass God's bar of righteousness. He demands perfection. None of us are perfect. Christ is perfect. You need Christ. Turn to him today. Well, despite worldly pressure to take up a new thing, the true church must keep coming back to Jesus Christ and the gospel. So on this eve of a new year in 2024, um, we're going to do the same thing. We're not going to put down Jesus Christ and the gospel and take up a new thing for a new year. We're not going to do that. We're going to continue to take up Jesus Christ and his word. We're going to keep hitting the message of salvation through faith alone and Christ alone. We're going to keep delivering that general gospel call to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. The church must keep making Jesus and his word their thing because Jesus has commanded that his church make that her thing. And it is how people will hear and see and place their faith in Christ. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father.